Good. Good morning. Good morning, everyone. Morning, Pastor. How are you? I'm well. Great. Good. Wonderful. <clears throat> Pastor. Yes, ma'am. Yes, so I, I wrote you a mixed metaphor before. Did you pick up <laughs> on it? I said tongue and nail. So it's either tooth and nail or hammer and tongs. True. True. <laughs> and uh, you probably looked at that and said, what is she talking about? Well, <laughs> I just assumed that you were being clever. Oh, that oh, I was. Yes. Okay. I absolutely okay. was. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I try to assume the best. <laughs> oh, you're wonderful. Thank you. Oh, that we all should do that. Uh. And second. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Okay. Very good. How about yourself, Joellen? I'm alive and breathing. Great. Good. <laughs> good. Well, then again, it'd be kind of funny if I was sitting here dead. So. <laughs> Anyway, no, I'm doing fine. Thank you. Good. Uh, uh, a couple of days is my uh, granddaughter Riley's birthday. Oh. So, yeah, and I got some great deals on exactly what she wanted. Wonderful. So, uh, she's a she's an artist. We're all artists in my family. You are right now. Uh, yeah, it's funny. And the grandchildren are also. So, and my daughter can get it. She won all kinds of awards in high school for her um, artistry. Wow. So, uh, yeah, she got scholarships and everything. <clears throat> and, uh, she was the little brain in the family. So, <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so, um, problem is she knows it. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyway. but uh, So, I got her some acrylic paints and canvases and a sketchbook. Wonderful. Yeah. And then we'll zoom on her birthday so that she can open them, uh, you know, with me. Good. Yeah. I can't believe there are no more babies in the family. This is the end of the babies. Tell me about it. Oh, goodness. It's, you know, uh, you know, because I had two sets of grandchildren. I have adult grandchildren and then I have little ones because of the age difference between the right. uh, Donna and Kelly is 12 years. So, mm -hmm. anyway. Yeah. <clears throat> so, these couple of months are all birthdays. <laughs> yeah. Something to celebrate. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the fact that I'm uh, close to the little ones and, and you know, and Kelly and her husband. So, uh, anyway. <clears throat> Good morning, darling. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, morning, Barbara. Good morning, Barbara. Good morning, Barbara. Good morning, Barbara. I can't see Joelle Janet. <clears throat> Darlene, were you in church on Sunday? I tried to be, but we forgot our, my walker. Oh. oh, no. I could not. John tried to walk me in, and I couldn't do it. Oh. We should get one to keep on hand. Maybe, maybe Charlene you said. Maybe yeah, you could have another church. person. <laughs> Or another I, person on the other side, you'd be more stable. I don't even know if I could do that. It would take well, me a long time to get in there and then back out. 
Oh, I'm so sorry you missed it. Yeah, I was I was there. It was yes. wonderful. You missed yeah, a wonderful hey, hey. message. Wonderful message. I'm going to get it. Hey, Pastor was pretty good on Sunday. Pastor was pretty good on Sunday. I'm kidding, you know. He's always good. But uh, of course, of course. But thank and you so much, Darlene, for the, good morning. For the venison and the fish. Yeah, this is Tess. Tess, good morning, Hi, Tess. Tess. How are you? Good morning. Morning, Tess. Hi, Hi, Jenny. Oh, oh that's my sister, there. everybody. Oh, Jenny is your sister. Good morning, Jenny. <laughs> good morning. <laughs> Dolly. Where, where, where do you live, Jenny? Far away? In the Bronx. Huh? In the Bronx. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, well, to me, that's far away. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is, is Pastor there? I am. He is. Okay, Pastor, I do have a prayer request from Betsy, she's not here today because she's helping to teach in Vacation Bible School at her church. So she requested prayer for herself and for the Vacation Bible School this week there. Of course, we will do that. Thank Let's you. go ahead and, uh, and do that now. Uh, also, um, Yvonne Feliciano, uh, her mother passed away this weekend, so... Uh keep that whole family in prayer. Oh, sad. She was sick, right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, let's go ahead and do that. Father, thank you for, for our day and for the privilege of coming before you and interceding for one another. Uh, Father, certainly we, uh, we lift up the Feliciano family uh, to you now uh, on the loss of uh, Yvonne's mom, uh, Stefan's grandmother. We do pray that you would be a comfort to them. And, uh, that they would uh, uh, take peace, Father, from uh, knowing you and that your spirit would be active uh, in all of them, Father, to give them the comfort that can only be known through your spirit. Father, we pray for Betsy as well and for uh, the VBS at her church and for all of the ministry that is going on and uh, all of your, your churches. We pray, Father, that there would be uh, a great impact of your people through the proclamation of the gospel and uh, every context in which it is proclaimed. And we pray, Father, for ourselves now as we come to your word. We do pray that uh, it would be a uh, source of joy to us to be together and to be opening your word uh, with our, our brothers and sisters. Father, for the wisdom that is contained within it. And we ask that your spirit would open it to us and make us receptive in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. We are in uh, 2 Timothy once again. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to pick up uh, around, chapter, uh, around verse 23. I'll review a little bit of what has been going on as we've come into this um, uh, second half of 2 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, Paul is uh, putting forth uh, a number of different images for us to, uh, uh, to understand. And so as, we, uh, as we, we do this, he's spoken about uh, a household. He's spoken about vessels. He's talking about the, the fact that those who are to be 
leaders and teachers in the church, and really all of us should be characterized by these things, but we are not to be wrangling about words going up back into verse uh, 14. If you go back even earlier than that into the beginning of the chapter, Paul's bringing out um, uh, these images of a soldier and a farmer, and that is continued down. Now we're going to have a third image in this passage that we're going to look at this morning uh, in verses 23 through 26, which is the conclusion of the chapter. You'll see it there in verse 24, where Paul mentions the Lord's bondservant. And of course, the bondservant is nothing other than a slave. Some of our modern versions will use uh, terms that are a bit softer. Uh, they'll use terms like bondservant or simply servant, but it is the word for slave. And of course, it's technically legitimate because slaves are servants, but it is that uh, typical term that uh, denotes one who is owned by another and in another service because that one belongs to someone else. And so when Paul comes here in verse 24 and speaks about the Lord's slave, he's talking about that relationship of ownership, uh, really. Now, of course, this is not uh, the ownership that comes along with the kind of slavery that we usually think of. This is a, an entirely benevolent slavery. Uh, we are the Lord's slaves because we love our master and we would have it no other way. The image given to this in the Old Testament, of course, comes out of um, uh, a human slave-master relationship, but within the Mosaic law, of course, there is that uh, provision for a slave who is eligible to be released and given his freedom, but he chooses not to take that freedom and rather to stay with his master. Uh, one of the, the crucial differences between uh, biblical slavery under the Mosaic law and the slavery that we normally think of, which obviously would be uh, American slavery uh, up to the, the Civil War, is that in biblical slavery, there were a number of different opportunities to regain one's freedom. There were sabbatical years and so forth. There were conditions placed on one's service to a master, and it was not a lifelong condition. And yet, at certain times, uh, the, the slave uh, would want to remain in the service of his master. He's being cared for. He's being provided for. His master has been good to him. Um, in ancient, uh, in that ancient form of slavery, both in um, slavery as it's described under the Mosaic law and uh, slavery in Greece or Rome, again, very different from our understanding of slavery, slaves would be, um, would have a great deal more freedom in their condition. They would be able to 
have their own homes sometimes. They would be able to conduct their own business. There, it, was, it was a very different kind of thing. So under the Mosaic Law, then, it, there was this understanding that the occasion might arise when a slave was eligible to gain his freedom, but chose not to. Uh, he desired to remain with his master. And so there was a process uh, that he would go through. The master would take him uh, to a post. Uh, an awl would be driven through his ear. His ear would be pierced, right? It wouldn't be any kind of form of torture or anything. It would just be the piercing of an ear. Uh, and then he would be given a ring to put through that, that piercing. And that ring would indicate that he had chosen to remain in the service of his master. And when we come now to this idea where Paul is using that um, image of slavery to speak of the relationship between a Christian and his Lord, it's that idea. Uh, our slavery is not um, uh, a negative thing. It is, it is a positive. It's something that we desire. We do not desire to be free from our master, but we desire to serve him with all that we are, um, not only through this life, but through eternity as well. And so Paul uses that term, uh, the Lord's slave, as he's describing uh, these things that he brings forth in, in this passage. So let me just quickly uh, read through these last four verses of chapter two, and then we'll move into chapter three, where Paul takes a little bit of a turn in his exhortation to Timothy. But in 2 Timothy chapter two, verse 23, he says this, but refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels, the Lord's slave, the Lord's bondservant, must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God might, may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. And so as we continue through this, it, we, it, it becomes clear that Paul is writing to Timothy in the specific context of one who is a leader in the church, an elder, a pastor. And we know that because of what he says there in verse 24, in regard to being able to teach. These are qualities that hearken back to 1 Timothy chapter 3, in which Paul was laying out the specific qualifications of elders within the local church, and one of those qualifications is that one be, a, be, be able to teach. So that kind of constrains the immediate context. Now, what we also understand, however, is that aside from that uh, ability to teach, everything else ought to be true of every believer. And so, you know, even as you go back through the qualifications of an elder, those qualifications are things which every 
child of God, every disciple of Jesus Christ, ought to be working toward. That is a description of maturity. And it those those qualities, those qualifications there, but simply qualities, ought to be true of all of us. Now, they are true to a greater or lesser degree in different people. That's why when Paul is talking about the qualifications of an elder, he says an elder must possess these qualities. Paul realizes that though the, although the ideal is that every believer possesses these qualities, the reality is that that's not going to be the case. There are going to be immature believers. There are going to be believers who have you know, fallen back into sin. There are going to be believers who have not uh, uh, gained a fullness in regard to these qualities, the fruits of the Spirit. Uh, and the same thing is, is happening here. So when Paul tells Timothy these things, yes, he's speaking to Timothy as the leader of the church there at Ephesus, as the pastor of that church at Ephesus. But what he says is applicable to all of us because we all want to be um, experience, I should say, the fullness of what God has for us uh, in regard to who we are as Christians and in regard to uh, our, our the, the, the fullness of the Spirit in our lives, how we reflect the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. We all want to uh, be growing toward maturity and have these things true of us. And so we need to keep that in mind as we read through the pastoral epistles. Yes, specifically in that narrow context in which they are written. They are written primarily to pastors and elders, but what is said in these epistles uh, apply to all of God's people. So we should all then refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. And we've, we've seen this before. We've seen it in 1 Timothy chapter 6. We will see it again when we get to the epistle to Titus. Um, Paul is constantly reminding his readers not to give themselves over to foolish debates about speculations and myths and genealogies and things that really are not important. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that all controversy ought to be avoided. There are controversies that are worth engaging in. There are truths that must be upheld. Okay. So when we um, come back to First uh, Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, you remember what Paul says there. He says, in case I am delayed... I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Well, that presents the church as that entity which upholds the truth. And if the church upholds the truth, then the church also has to deal with falsehood. And so one of the things that takes place within the church, primarily through the elders of the church, is the, the support, right, the upholding of truth, 
and the warning of falsehood, right? We warn God's people about falsehood. So there are instances when those kinds of significant controversies must take place. And you see this throughout the history of the church. You see it first happening, as we've already looked at in the past, in Acts chapter 15, when uh, the apostles and the elders of the churches gathered together for the Jerusalem council, because there were people coming into the churches saying that Gentiles could only be saved if they were circumcised and came under the law of Moses. And that was a denial, rightfully recognized as such, a denial of the gospel. And so when the church came together, they were dealing with a controversy. You had people on, on two different sides of an issue, and they came together and they fought it out. And, of course, Peter got up and spoke at that council, and, and Paul followed him, and then James gave the decision of that council. And as you work your way through church history, you find the same thing again and again and again. Um, you know, what is uh, the nature of Christ? Is Christ fully God? Is he fully man? Is he fully both God and man, right? The Council of Nicaea was hashing these things out. It was a controversy, and it was a controversy that needed to take place. What is the nature of God? What is the Trinity? How do we understand these things? And on and on and on. You come to the Reformation, That's what was happening again. What is the nature of the gospel? Is the gospel uh, a gospel of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone? Or is the gospel somehow a combination of grace and works coming together? Well, that's another controversy. And it was a controversy that had to take place because it was a key issue in understanding um, the, the, the faith and upholding the truth as the church is the pillar in support of the truth. But there are a lot of things that we ought not argue about. And Paul talks about them uh, in terms of being foolish and ignorant speculation that serve no good purpose. Rather, they only produce quarrels. They produce division uh, within the church. And so we, we, we must not deal with those. Uh, we must not give ourselves over to quarreling over things that really are not important, things that are of a secondary nature. Uh, you know, just one uh, example of this that Paul had to deal with when he wrote uh, to the church at Rome. In Romans chapter 14, Paul is dealing there with issues that are not um, crucial. They are not part of the gospel. They are not even biblical issues of holiness. But rather, they are issues that are neither here nor there in regard to sin or salvation. And yet, they could drive a wedge between brothers and sisters within the local church. And so if you go back to Romans chapter 14, we see what some of these things are. Paul gives a number of examples of these things. 
Just beginning in verse 1, Paul says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. So that's the first issue that Paul brings out uh, and says, listen, you ought not argue about these things. You ought not judge one another concerning these things. If someone wants to eat only vegetables, well, that's their choice. I personally don't understand that, but that's not for me to, to, to pass judgment upon. If other people want to eat meat, well, okay, that's fine too. What we put into our mouths is not an issue that we judge one another uh, upon. Uh, as he, he, he goes on in, in verse 6, he says, he who observes a day, right? So here's another issue. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. So what, what is this day? Well, it seems pretty clear. Paul's talking about um, uh, the, the Sabbath day. Uh, remember, we are early in the uh, development of the New Covenant Church. You've still got uh, a mixed multitude within the church. You've got those with a uh, coming out of a, a Jewish heritage in which the Sabbath meant a great deal to them. And now you've got Gentiles coming in and they know nothing about uh, a Sabbath day, but they're all now coexisting within the same church. And Paul is saying, listen, if you want to observe the day, notice it says the day, not a day. If you want to observe the day the way you, you know, you used to, you're perfectly free to do that. Nobody's making you uh, do anything in regard to the day. You come together as the people of God on the Lord's day. And, you know, beyond that, if you want to still take that whole day and not do anything as you did under the Mosaic law, you're free to do that. But if others choose to observe the day, differently, then you shouldn't judge them either. And so Paul deals with that issue as well. The he who, he goes on in verse six, he who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. He who eats not for the Lord, he does not eat. He gives thanks and, and gives thanks to God. So it doesn't matter. What do you eat? What do you drink? What do you do to observe a day or not observe a day. None of these things are issues that we are to argue over. This is the kind of thing that Paul is talking about back in 2 Timothy. Um, the, the issue, as he just to, you know, summarize the rest of, of Romans 14, Paul's point is that none of these things are issues to quarrel over. And so, when it comes to these issues, they are issues of conscience, and we are to either, you know, um, uh, participate in these various activities or refrain from them, not because there is any law that is given, but because we want to care for our brothers and sisters. And so he uses those, those, that, that terminology, weaker and stronger. And the weaker is the one who has all of the scruples. The weaker person, Paul says, is the one who says, well, I can't do that, and I can't do this, and I can't do the other thing. 
The stronger brother is the one who understands these are not really issues at all. This is not sin. There's no, no problem here. But if my brother, in his own conscience, because of his background, whatever he has come out of, if he has a tender conscience about these issues, I'm not going to do anything to cause him to violate his conscience. And so I will refrain from exercising my liberty for the sake of my brother or sister. So when we come back to 2 Timothy uh, 2.23, then, Paul's talking about foolish and ignorant speculations, things that produce quarrels. He's talking about the things that are not important to the gospel, to the you know, essential truths of the faith. We ought not you know, focus on these things. And this comes into play even when we're dealing with people outside of the church, right? If, if you've got a, uh, a Jehovah's Witness that comes to your door, for instance, right? you ought not spend a lot of time talking about, you know, whether they celebrate birthdays. They don't. They don't celebrate holidays at all. Who cares? That's not the point. That doesn't matter. The crucial thing is, who is Jesus? That's where we have the controversy with them. Um, Mormons come to your door. Right? Mormons have this thing about wearing special underwear, and it's you know supposed to somehow safeguard you from evil or something. Right? Well, I don't care what underwear people want to want to wear. Uh, I want to deal with the gospel. I want to deal with the nature of God and who Jesus is and what the gospel is, that is worth engaging in controversy over. I could care less what anybody believes about those other things that, you know, we might consider to be different. Uh, that's, that's neither here nor there. I don't care if it's a Christian who, who doesn't want to celebrate Christmas. They're, the Puritans thought Christmas was a problem. And there are still people who say, you know, we're just, that's not in the scripture and, and we're not going to do that. Okay. There's no command in scripture to celebrate Christmas. Someone says they're not going to do that. Okay. That's, that's fine. That's not an issue. I'm not going to quarrel with anybody over that, but come to issues of the gospel, come to issues of the nature of God and who Jesus is. Yeah that is going to be something that is worth having a controversy over. And so this is where Paul is going, refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. The only thing worth dividing over is the truth. And the truth about key core issues. Otherwise, we're looking for unity. We're looking for ways to preserve unity and not divide. And so the Lord's bondservant, the Lord's slave, must not be quarrelsome. We ought not be looking for those things which are going to divide us. We ought not be, you know, looking for a fight. And again, you know, this brings us back to um, what, Paul has already said, and will say again, uh, you know, in the qualifications of, of an elder, what does, does Paul say? That 
the, the elder must not be pugnacious. He must not be looking for a fight. He, 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 he needs to be gentle, uh, not hot-tempered, not violent. That is what is to characterize every believer, but especially those who are going to, to lead the church. We ought to be known by the fruit of the Spirit, one of which is gentleness. We ought to be characterized by the desire to be a peacemaker rather than a war maker. And so, you know, Paul says in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, that when Paul came to the Thessalonians, he says, we were gentle among you as a nursing mother nurtures her own children. That's the kind of, of attitude and persona that ought to be evident in every slave of the Lord. You see that as, as Paul goes on there in verse 24, because he, he gives us this contrast. Uh, the Lord's slave, the Lord's bondservant, must not be quarrelsome, but what's the opposite of that? Being kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. So you see, again, Paul making this distinction between foolish and ignorant speculations, which we're not to quarrel about, and things that need to be corrected. This is why he brings in that quality of being able to teach. And I, I think one of the things that, that we need to be, be seeing here in regard to what Paul's saying is that within this, this context and the contrast that Paul is making here, I think one of the things he's saying is that even when you are correcting, you are to be able to teach in such a way that quarrels do not develop as a result of your teaching. Because there, that is the contrast, right? We're not going to engage in foolish and ignorant speculation, which are going to produce quarrels. But when we teach, we teach in such a way as to not produce quarrels over those kinds of things. Now, you can only, um, as you know, uh, Scripture says elsewhere, you can only be at peace with all men so far as it concerns you. You can't always control how other people respond to the truth. So there might be quarrels that arise. There might be controversies that arise because you can't control what other people are going to do. But as the word of God is taught among God's people, as those who are in opposition are corrected, it ought to be done in a gentle way through the teaching of the word so that the authority, and this is, I think, what Paul's getting at when he says able to teach, right? The authority is not coming from the teacher, but from the scripture. So when I'm seeking to correct, when I'm dealing with error, as I'm teaching, 
I'm not standing before God's people and speaking in my own authority. I am correcting according to the word of God. The word of God says this, therefore, this is right, that is wrong. In that way, then, it doesn't become a personal issue. It's not me against someone else. It's holding up before God's people the authority of his word, to which, as God's people, we are to be slaves. We are to be accountable. We are to be in submission. And so that's what, what Paul's getting at here as he's writing to Timothy. There are going to be those in opposition. They are going to need to be corrected. Paul's already dealt with this. He dealt with this in the very first chapter of 1 Timothy. This is something that is always going to be the case within the church. There are always going to be those who come into the church seeking to spread falsehood, whether consciously spreading falsehood or simply because they don't know any better and they haven't been taught better, or perhaps they've got issues in their own lives and spirit that cause them to want to teach about that, which they don't know anything about, which was the issue in Ephesus, First Timothy tells us. Whatever the case may be, correction is one part of uh, the ministry of the elders, and that correction is not to be done Uh, in an arrogant fashion, or with hostility, but with gentleness, because there is a goal to correction. And Paul takes us there, um, here in verse 25, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. Why? Why do we want to correct those who are in opposition? And why do we need to do it gently? If perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. So you don't want to come in and, you know, your first inclination when dealing with someone who is in opposition to the truth is just to firebomb them. Take out your, 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 you know, uh, flamethrower and destroy them. That's not the goal. The goal is to win them. The goal is to show someone their error, and in doing that gently, in the authority of Scripture, one is constantly desiring that God will grant them repentance. Now, a couple of things to to, to note there. First of all, uh, Paul puts this in terms of repentance, that is, If someone has a false understanding of the truth, it is something that needs to be repented of. It is, in this sense, a kind of intellectual sin. When one turns from their falsehood to the truth, that is repentance. One is turning away from that which is false, and that's what we desire. And so Paul says, Timothy, when you need to do this, do it gently, because the goal is not to win an argument. The goal is not to win a debate. The goal is to turn this individual to repentance, repenting of their false teaching. 
and bringing them to the truth. But note something else here about repentance. Repentance is something that is granted. It's not something someone does on their own. It's not some, Paul isn't telling Timothy, you know, in gentleness, correct those who are in opposition so that they might come to their senses and bring themselves to repentance. That's not what he says. says, So that God may grant them repentance. And this is something we need to understand because this is true in terms of the gospel as a whole. When someone comes to the gospel, it is only because God has granted repentance to that person and granted them faith. And you see this elsewhere in scripture. We saw this in, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, when uh, belief is uh, spoken of as that which God grants to people. In the book of Acts, when the Gentiles first come to understand the gospel, Jewish believers are amazed that God is granting repentance to the Gentiles. It's some, it, it is a gift, and it has to be a gift because when one is outside of Christ, one is dead in sin, one's heart is stone, and they cannot repent. They don't desire to repent. God has to work first. And so God grants repentance. And when someone is in error concerning important theological issues and doctrines, whether it be who God is, who Jesus is, what the gospel is, God must grant repentance. And that's the goal. And part of the way then that we work together with what we desire God to do is to be gentle in our correction. Because this is what we want. We want God to grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. So there are two parts. First, I'm going to repent of my false understanding of the truth, but then I'm going to embrace the truth. And there is a third option, of course. Uh, one can can turn from one particular falsehood to another falsehood. Uh, we brought up Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons you know, uh, a, a moment ago. One can repent of the false teaching of Mormonism and then fall into the false teaching of the Jehovah's Witnesses. So you can go that way. But what we desire is one to turn from their false teaching, not to another false teaching, but to the truth. And those are two aspects of what we desire to happen. And one of the ways we work together for that end is by correcting in gentleness, because we want them to be granted repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. We also, verse 26, desire that they come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. So, What does that tell you? Obviously, it tells you that false teaching has its source in the devil. Because he is who? He's the father of lies. When Jesus was accusing the Pharisees of lying and of teaching falsely, 
He said, you are of your father, the devil. And this is what Paul comes back to here, to turn from falsehood to the truth is to escape the snare of the devil. The devil wants to bring falsehood not only into an individual's life, but also into the church. And that's his, that's his goal. Right? And so he's going to do that in any way he can. Typically, he's not going to come banging on the door of the church with false teaching that is very obvious. He's going to try to be subtle. You see this in Galatians when Paul's dealing with this um, uh, Judaizing heresy. The people who came into the church of Galatia did not come with an entirely different gospel. They came and they said, okay, listen to what Paul said. He was right as far as it went, but there's something he's missing. We just need to add this little bit. And that little bit, of course, was circumcision, which would bring people under the law, would destroy grace, and therefore destroy the gospel. And so Paul says, I don't care if it's just this little thing you want to add to the gospel. If you do that, it is another gospel entirely. And that's what Satan is seeking to do. He's seeking to bind people to another gospel. So once again, when you're looking at, at cults, right, you go to the Mormons, and what will they tell you? They will tell you, well, of course we believe the Bible. And they'll come to your home, and they'll want to sit down and talk to you, and they will pull out a Bible. And they'll talk about God, and they'll talk about Jesus, and they'll use a lot of the same terminology. Jehovah's Witnesses, the same thing. They'll pull out a Bible, and they'll start quoting the Bible. Why? Because if, you know, they come in with something entirely foreign to your understanding, your guard is going to be up. But for those who are weak, who don't understand the scripture, who don't know the word, well, then they're going to leave themselves open to um, uh, what Paul refers to as the snare of the devil. And that's something that needs to be escaped from, right? Not uh, fallen into. Um, he says then that they have been held captive by him to do his will. So understand this. Uh, someone, you, you think of someone, if I were just to, to, to come to you and give you that kind of description, here is someone who is ensnared by the devil, who is held captive by him to do his will. What will that person be like? And we could come up with all kinds of pictures in our mind of you know, genuine obvious evil. Uh, you know, this person is a Satanist. Um, you know, you have somebody on, on the one hand who uh, might walk around in, you know, long flowing black robes and, you know, they've, they've, they, they just look like a Satanist. And then you've got maybe Hitler. Well, yeah, somebody who would kill millions of people, yeah, they're ensnared by the devil, 
and um, are held captive to do his will. I can, I get that. That's, I don't have a problem grasping that. But keep it in terms of what we've been talking about. What about the nice, clean-cut young guys who come to your door, you know, with short sleeve white shirts and ties? They don't look evil. They don't look wicked. They don't look like they're held in bondage. But Paul says they are. Paul says that there can be people in the local church who are ensnared by the devil, held captive by him to do his will. Satan doesn't present himself with horns and a pitchfork, you know, and a long pointy tail. He comes as an angel of light, scripture says. That's why it's so important that we do what Paul exhorts us to do throughout his writings, what we're exhorted to do throughout scripture, and that is to know the word of God so that we can tell truth from error. So behind all of this is the belief that the real enemy is not the false teacher, but the devil who stands behind them. He has captured them to do his will. Paul wanted Timothy to share his desire in seeing that these opponents might not be destroyed, but might come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. Notice the the idea here is, is the idea of warfare. Those who oppose the gospel are in the grips of the evil one. They desperately need to come to a knowledge of the truth. And the hope that they might do that is found in the power of God working through the gospel, working through the truth of his word, by which he is able to grant repentance. He is able to open their eyes to the truth. He is able to put a new heart within them, take out the heart of stone, put with them, within them a heart of flesh. He is able uh, to raise them from the dead in which they find themselves. They were dead in their sin, and God makes us alive. God does this. He grants this repentance. And so the call of this chapter is is weighty right he's dealing primarily although he's dealing with everyone he's dealing primarily with teachers and leaders in the church who need to be faithful who need to be workmen not ashamed diligent in their study of the word accurate in their teaching of that word they are to work hard uh, to keep uh, their hearers on the straight way, faithful teachers, honorable vessels, Paul uses all of this this imagery, maintaining purity in both life and doctrine, fleeing youthful passions, pursuing Jesus, uh, avoiding foolish controversies, speaking gently, Uh, to their opponents, praying that God grants them repentance. And all of these challenges, 
bring us back to something Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, who is sufficient for these things? This is a question I come back to as a pastor all the time. Who is sufficient for these things? The answer is nobody, least of all me. But the Lord working through his word is fully sufficient. And while every leader within every church is going to fail at these tasks that Paul is setting out here, every child of God ought to take heart in the fact that there is one who has fulfilled them all. Our Lord Jesus Christ has done everything that Paul says ought to be done. And it is in Christ and through Christ that we live and that we seek to be obedient to these exhortations and commands. Jesus was the ultimate workman who need not be ashamed, who perfectly taught God's word. He taught with authority not as the scribes leading us on that path to eternal life. Jesus alone could stand before the Father with no shame in and of himself because he perfectly fulfilled the Father's will. We are able to stand before the Father unashamed only because we are in Christ. It's a derivative ability to stand before the Father without shame. But Christ could do it in and of himself. He was the ultimate honorable vessel. He was set apart for a special work of rescuing sinners. And because of his perfect fulfillment of God's righteous commandments, of all of God's requirements, that's his active righteousness, as well as his passive righteousness in going to the cross as a substitutionary atonement for sinners, we now are able to be made righteous. We are given the power to be obedient to him, that which we desire for others, right? We desire them to come to repentance and to come to obedience. Jesus was the ultimate slave of God. He was gentle and humble in heart. Uh, you know, he is portrayed as both meek and majestic. As you go back into the, 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 the Old Testament prophetic passages, the messianic passages, the servant songs of Isaiah, that's how he's presented, the suffering servant enduring um, uh, the scourging of evil men and the mocking of sinners, going to the cross as a sheep, led to the slaughter, wounded for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, oppressed and afflicted, yet not opening his mouth, bearing the sin of many and interceding on their behalf. Jesus Christ, the Lord's servant, is not only the model for all teachers, but for every child of God. As God gives us the power to accomplish our mission in the world, that great commission, taking the gospel out to those who need to hear it, who are currently dead in their sin, but who can be turned to repentance, should God grant it by his spirit, through the proclamation of the gospel and the word of God. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this. 
And we need to see that whenever we come to the scripture and we see commands given to God's people, we need to understand that although we cannot keep those commands perfectly, Jesus has, and we stand before God in his righteousness. Now, rather than jump into chapter three um, this morning, which takes us in a, in a slightly different direction, um, if anyone has any questions or comments on what we've seen uh, so far, we can deal with that. I unmute here. Mm-hmm. Yes, Janet, go ahead. Uh, Janet, you muted yourself again. You're still muted. You had it. I heard. There you go. Okay. Okay. I won't touch it again. Now you're good. Thank you. Oh, I am so good. Uh, <laughs> but, I'm, but I'm just a little confused. Um, you talked about the passive and active. Righteousness of Christ. Yes. Of Christ. And, and I would have thought that the active was going to the cross, but you said that was the passive. Correct. Because as Christ was on the cross. I'm sure you're right. I just didn't yeah, understand. Right. The, the way that the way those terms are used theologically, we, we speak about both the active righteousness of Christ and the passive righteousness of Christ. The active righteousness of Christ is, is a reference to uh, Christ fulfilling the law during his earthly ministry that throughout his his earthly life jesus never sinned right he 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 never um did anything wrong whereas we obviously are not capable of doing that jesus did and so in and now then there's his passive righteousness where he was hanging on the cross uh fulfilling all righteousness in his atonement as well so it's that passivity hanging on the cross as opposed to his active fulfillment of the law of God during his, his, his life. And what we, what we often um, forget or miss is that when we talk about Christ as our substitute, it encompasses both of those things. We, he was the substitute um, in terms of the fulfillment of God's law, as well as our substitute on the cross paying the penalty for, for our sin. Uh, his righteousness is given to us, and the way that his righteousness can be given to us is because in the incarnation, as he identifies with us, he not only died in our place, but he lived in our place. And fulfilled the law at every point. And now, as we are in union with him, his righteous fulfillment of the law becomes ours. That righteousness is imputed to us, just as his passive righteousness in taking upon himself the penalty for sin is accomplished as a substitute for us as well. Thank you. Uh, yes, I, I get it now. Thank you. I just think. Thanks, Jenny. Um, go ahead. Joellen, go ahead. Who? Joellen, you go. Okay. <laughs> uh, I have a question. Um, I was looking at um, 
uh, doctrinal statements in a couple of churches, and one of them, which I went to, instead of using the word repentance, their doctrinal statement was perfect, except they used regeneration instead of repentance. Is there a difference? Oh, yes, certainly. Thank uh, you. you. You you cannot, this is probably what was going on in, in that statement, um, you cannot come to repentance apart from the work of regeneration. Regeneration, as you can work out from the term, uh, is being made alive. Right? Uh, it is what Paul's talking about in Ephesians chapter 2. You were dead in your sin, but God made you alive. That's regeneration. Um, when Jesus speaks to Nicodemus about being born again, he's talking about regeneration. Right? That is, I was dead and now I'm alive. To put it in Old Testament terms, it's the dry bones from Ezekiel. It is the heart of stone being made a heart of flesh. That is that work. And until that work is accomplished, and it is a sovereign work of God, we cannot make ourselves regenerate. God regenerates us. And only then can we respond to God's gift of repentance and faith. We repent and we believe because God has already caused us to be regenerate. He has made us alive. If we are still dead, a dead person cannot repent. A dead person cannot believe. God makes us alive and then grants us repentance and faith. So it, depending on the doctrinal statement you're looking at, doctrinal statements are summaries. Um, and typically, uh, if, if someone is speaking about regeneration in their doctrinal statement, they're making that point that salvation comes about as a response to the work of regeneration. So, so it's, but it is, it, but it, it, is it different than repentance though? Uh, um, it leads um, to repentance. Yes, it's yeah, I mean, uh, shouldn't repentance be there? That's what I'm saying. In the doctrine if, if regeneration has occurred, if the, God has accomplished his work of regeneration in a person, they will repent and believe. Okay. That's irresistible grace. That's right. God calling, drawing, giving life. Um, you know, those whom God is bringing to him. God, just think of it this way. God is not going to make someone spiritually alive and not grant them repentance and faith, right? That would be like a, a zombie. Um, you'd have someone who is spiritually alive, but not believing in Jesus. That, that doesn't work. You cannot, right. you cannot have repentance and faith without the work of regeneration, which precedes repentance and faith, but always leads to it. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. There was someone else. It, yes, and I was going to say that I never realized that that verse talking about a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed, I never thought of applying it to Jesus Christ. We memorized that verse, kind of telling ourselves we've, we're the workmen, mm -hmm. but here we see, uh, it comes out of the gospel, that the ultimate workman is Christ, who did everything that was necessary 
and fulfill the Father's will that we can't do without his help. That's right. So thank you for that. Well, you're very welcome. And, you know, it's a great thing to, uh, you know, to contemplate when you, when you look through Jesus' ministry, um, and particularly his, his teaching ministry, right? Jesus is what, um, what teachers in the church uh, want to replicate. Right. Um, I, I, I keep going back to the end of, of Luke in this regard. And you know, after the resurrection and Jesus is uh, on the road to Emmaus with those two disciples and he's opening up the scriptures to them, the Old Testament, obviously, New Testament hadn't been written. And he's showing them where he is in all of the Old Testament scriptures. And, you know, it's just uh, I. I, I long for the day when, you know, I'm in glory and, you know, maybe can get a recording of that <laughs> or, or, you know, uh, sit at the, the feet of the Lord as he does that again. I want to hear that. I want to know what Jesus was teaching uh, in, in that regard. And much of it comes out, you know, of, of the apostolic teaching. Uh, that would come that we have in the New Testament. And that's why we need to follow the lead of the apostles as they tell us what these different aspects of the Old Testament uh, meant and how we are to understand them. But I've got to believe that there's just so much more if Jesus is taking them through the entire Old Testament on that little walk of theirs and saying, yep, I'm here and I'm here and I'm here and I'm here and I'm here. Uh, how glorious would that be? So, you know, one of the, um, the things that, that I just you know, love to do is to go back and, and see Jesus there in the Old Testament and bring him out because he is everywhere, right? He's every, every, every story, um, every, every narrative, every psalm, every proverb, uh, Jesus is there through it all. And to see him there is a glorious thing. And, uh, you know, one of the, the joys of, of studying the scripture and getting to know it more and more and more is that you begin to make all of these connections yes. uh, that perhaps you didn't see before. Yes. Thank you, Joanne. Anyone else? Pastor? Yes. When you were speaking of verse 25, if God... Uh, God will give them repentance. Did you, were you using that as an election verse? Well, certainly um, it's, it's one aspect of that, that if uh, it, it's, it's bringing it all back to the sovereignty of God, right? So the idea is um, no one is going to come to repentance unless God grants it. That's the idea. Right. So, yes. So our, our desire um, in, in gently correcting those who are in opposition is that God will utilize us as an instrument in calling forth his people whom he will grant repentance when he does call them, just as he will grant faith. So yes, mm -hmm. it's, absolutely. That's the underlying understanding of what Paul is saying there. That verse doesn't make sense unless you understand the sovereignty of God in salvation. 
Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Anyone else? Pastor. Yes, Tess. Just um, was thinking something, and I was I'm wondering. Maybe you could correct me. Um, throughout the the New Testament, when um, the Lord wants to save a person, for instance, Cornelius and Lydia, um, he sends someone, and the and the Ethiopian eunuch sends someone to tell them the gospel of Jesus Christ and the crucifixion and the resurrection. Is that the way um, a person is being saved? They have to know about Jesus and um, the crucifixion. Oh, the cross the, the, um, must be the reason for um, the belief to mm. get salvation. Right, right. Now that, that, that knowledge can come in different ways, obviously. Someone picks a track up off the sidewalk and reads it. This Holy Spirit can use that um, without any, you know, human beings standing there speaking to them. Someone picks up a Bible somewhere and reads it. Um, you know, that it, the, the, the key element is the Word of God. Now, the Word of God is communicated or transmitted um, in, in different ways, right? Someone had to print that Bible and then leave it wherever this person found it. Someone had to write the track and have it published, and somebody else had to, you know, hand it to someone else who then dropped it onto the sidewalk so this other person could find it. Uh, but, but there has to be a communication of the gospel. And the gospel is not, as we hear so often today, uh, just doing good things, right? The gospel is what Paul says in, in uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, that Christ Jesus died for our sins according to the scripture and rose again on the third day according to the scripture. The gospel is about the crucifixion, uh, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then our response to that it needs to be one of repentance and faith. And God uses his word, uses the gospel, as the means by which he saves. So it is the instrument. And, you know, you get that, um, you know, our brother mentioned this uh, yesterday in terms of Romans chapter, uh, chapter 10. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Right? The good news, the gospel, has to be communicated. No one is saved apart from an understanding of who Christ is and what he has done. Thank you. You're welcome, Tess. And, and, and I just myself have realized lately that when I use the term gospel, it's too vague. Mm-hmm. Because I'm I'm seeing that people understand it as the priest stands up and reads part of Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. That's the gospel, but that's not the gospel we mean when we talk about salvation. So I, I have to have a, a more specific way of using the gospel. It seems so clear to a Christian, you know, the gospel. 
but it's kind of like the word God or Jesus. It, it means all kinds of different things. You have to put so much more into it than just the word because it's not getting across clearly. So yeah. I have to concentrate on describing the gospel in a better way. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that is a problem, right? Because ter- ter- terminology changes. And you know, really, the church has had this problem for a long time. You have the gospel as it's presented in scripture. Um, and then, you know, uh, a few hundred years down the road uh, from when the gospels were written, they began to be called the gospel of Mark and the gospel of John and the gospel of Matthew. And that kind of brought some confusion uh, into it. Uh, Further confusion came about when, with the rise of liberalism, and we began to get much less specific about what we mean by the gospel. And so now, you know, you can listen to people, when I'm listening to people talk, I can almost, you know, uh, determine where they're coming from theologically uh, by listening to how they use the term gospel, because so many people will will talk about the gospel and just use it as a synonym for, you know, for as I said, for being nice, for, you know, just general obedience to a Christian ethic or something. Uh, you know, the feeding the poor and, and so forth. And so the, the, the content of the gospel of grace uh, is often lost. And so, you know, what, what matters then uh, is not so much that we call it the gospel. It's the content of the gospel. Uh, I want people to know who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And that's the important thing. So, you know, again, uh, we're back to that, that idea of, you know, do we, what, what do we major on? We've all heard the phrase, don't major on the minors, right? Well, I don't have to use the term gospel when I'm presenting the gospel. Uh, that understanding of what the gospel is, that can come down the road. Right. As as someone comes to faith in Christ and is discipled, they'll come to understand that. But understanding, you know, that the, the proper usage of that term does not save. What saves is the content of what I mean by the gospel, which is Jesus Christ living, dying, rising again for the forgiveness of sinners. And that's what I want to communicate. Thank you. You're welcome. All right. Well, let's leave it there. And uh, again, we'll we'll come back with uh, and pick up with chapter three um, next week. Uh, we are going to uh, come together again tomorrow night at uh, at seven. If you can join us, we're uh, we've completed our study in Esther. And we're going to take a, a, a couple of weeks, um, uh, at least, uh, and, and talk about something that I've been um, focusing on uh, recently, and that is the love of God. Um, Donald Carson uh, wrote uh, something uh, a while back called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. And 
uh, that kind of uh, caught my attention. And so I've been looking into that and looking at uh, throughout the, uh, the scripture and what the scripture tells us about the love of God, because it's something that we can take for granted. Um, it's something that, you know, typically people don't have an issue with. You know, why does Carson refer to it as a difficult doctrine? Uh, it seems like an easy doctrine, right? Well, yeah, God loves people. That's what he's supposed to do, right? So what's difficult about it? Well, we're going to take a little time and uh, look into that before we, we jump into another book. So we'll be doing that tomorrow night. If you are uh, able to join us, I'd uh, love to see you there. Uh, let's pray together and ask God's blessing upon us as we go. Father, uh, we want to be uh, like uh, that which is described in Paul's epistle to Timothy. Uh, in every way, Father, which is applicable to us in our unique position as your child. Uh, Father, we all are not pastors and elders, but Father, we, uh, we all uh, must have a desire for truth and the purity of the church. Uh, a desire, Father, to see those who are in the snare of Satan come to a saving knowledge of Christ. We all desire, Father, to be workmen who need not be ashamed. Father, in all of this, we ask that you would accomplish these things in us as we seek to please you day in and day out. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful day. Thank you. Goodbye, all. Goodbye, everybody.